I'm curious on your thoughts on the committees, you know, what are the, the committees in Congress today, the standing committees or, or what, whichever committee you pick, are they the right ones? Do they have the right scope? And should they be changed? How could that happen? Yeah, I think the, the change really occurs not in the uh, written rules where the jurisdictions are, are sort of spelled out, but as you have more and more new issues emerging, especially in the area of cyber and, and so on, intellectual property, any number of things, you know, you're just getting more and more things to deal with. And uh, so I think committees really, really fight for a piece of the pie if something is, is a, hot, a hot issue uh, and uh, there is constant conflict. Now, they thought back in the 1970s when they couldn't really rationalize committee jurisdictions that the way to handle this was to do what's called multiple referrals. So the speaker was given authority to send a bill, not just to the committee, the, the committee with primary jurisdiction, but also to look at what other committees might have secondary jurisdictions. So it's not unusual, at least we, and, you know, when the Republicans took over, they said the speaker has to designate a primary committee and then the rest would be considered secondary. But it's not unusual then for committees to still have, you know, a lot of fights over, you know, what they can and cannot do under their respective jurisdictions now. You know, the leadership has been overriding that now and basically saying to secondary committees, step aside, let the primary committee bring out their bill. And if they don't, the leadership will bypass the committee and bring that bill to the floor. So, you know, that's the way things have sort of evolved from at least a good idea to allow different committees that have a piece of the action uh, to, to be part of the action to, to where we are now, where even the primary committee quite often is cut out of the action by the leadership. So you don't see any need to really change the scope of the leadership scope of those committees you think it's the the multiple referral system is good enough to overcome issues like on cybersecurity you mentioned I, you know i don't think it would hurt to have another uh review by a uh, select committee or a joint committee of committee jurisdictions just to try and update things without without creating a whole lot of new jurisdictional uh disputes but at least to, to update things so, so you know I think there's room there for review and to, to set things uh, on a better course. I'm just not terribly optimistic given all the cat fights that occurred in the past when you had uh, committees appointed to uh, reform committee jurisdictions and you ended up with a lot of blood on the floor as Tom Foley used to put it. He said, you know, when we tried to, to do that uh, subsequent to the whole fight in 1974 over committee reform, he said, uh, and this is when we had a joint committee back in the 90, 90, 93, 94. He just said, stay away from committee jurisdictions. He said, there's still blood on the Democratic cloakroom floor from the 1974 fight. So it's something the leadership tries to, you know, to avoid uh, like the plague. Got it. And if we go back to the, the budget authorization appropriations process, can you talk a little bit about the authorizations and appropriation side of it then? You know, obviously Congress isn't doing what it's supposed to do in those areas. I'm sure you have a perspective on it and uh, how it's got to where it is, where it should go. Yeah, there is a, a regular report that is uh, put out and I can't remember uh, whether it's the, uh, it's the government accountability office now, I used to call the, uh, what the general accounting office, but anyway, about uh, unauthorized appropriations and how over the years, more and more of the, the bills that are supposed to be reauthorized are not, that the committees just uh, slip up, maybe the House will pass an authorization and the Senate uh, 
is the uh, as the house likes to refer to it as the graveyard for good house bills so quite often these authorizations will die in the senate but the appropriations committee goes forward anyway uh, even though they're supposed to have an authorization before they appropriate that is routinely waived by the rules committee because you know authorizing committees aren't doing their work you know the idea of authorizing committees is to set policy and and do setting policy they're also setting priorities within their their jurisdiction how much do we want to go for elementary and secondary education versus how much for college uh, uh, student loans or, or whatever but uh, you know increasingly these authorizations are, are falling by the wayside and so the uh, the appropriations committee picks up the ball and, and does the best it can within the overall parameters that it's handed on on the budget and is there a way to get the authorizers to do their job yeah i think that uh obviously you need probably more uh, long-term authorizations that are realistic instead of authorizations that are two or three years at a time that would be one thing to do so that committees have a a more limited agenda to tackle in the next congress you know doing uh, maybe uh, five authorizations instead of uh, 10 or 15 authorizations so you know i think that would be one way uh, to handle it but again if committees are being cut out increasingly by the leadership there's not the incentive for them to even uh, do that. I mean, they're just wondering at what point is leadership going to step in and say, well, we really don't like uh, that move that you made or this move that you're anticipating. So, uh, you know, we're going to take this bill to the floor uh, without your further input. So, you know, I, you know, I wish that I had a happier or more optimistic note on what can be done, but uh, I think that's the reality of the process today. And, and until, and what I've really argued in uh, my recent talks on congressional reform is that until the leadership agrees to a better balance between leadership control and you know committee initiatives uh that you're you're going to continue to have this whole breakdown in the process where you know the leadership is uh having too much control the committees are having too little input and uh, so you know this this is going to be on an unending type of uh, you know loop if, if you're just not addressing the, the fact that committees need to have more authority, more independence, more, you know, more ability to take into account amendments even by minority members that are, are well-intentioned and, and, uh, and could be accepted. You know, that brings up this, a little bit of this notion of transparency, you know, because we, I have a, a pet theory, I guess, that, uh, that power will migrate towards the place that is least transparent, right? Um, and, uh, Today, as you have the floor is transparent and the committees are transparent, and so power is going to migrate, you know, maybe to a leadership office where there's no transparency, right? We don't know what's happening inside those offices. Yeah. Cameras aren't on. So what do you think the role of this transparency is in any of this, um, any of these kinds of problems we've just been discussing, you know, particularly on the messaging versus the substance of legislation? Yeah. In a, in a talk or interview I had last week, uh, I actually had a presentation that was titled Reforming Congress by Stealth. And in that, I recommended that the members, the committees, especially with the leadership uh, uh, agreement, find ways to have more uh, informal committee caucuses, uh, things that are off the record, that are, are private, where A, members can get to know each other better, because that's a big part of the problem now. Members barely get to know each other even within the same party, let alone across the aisle with the other party, but B, that there be discussions before they get into the 
public uh, hearings or markups or whatever about where we might want to go, where there could be some agreement between the parties and so on. So I think that's a way that it wouldn't violate the, the rules as being a secret uh, committee meeting that was done without the committee voting to go into secret. But it's what we used to do back in the 70s, where the chairman would invite you know, the members of both parties in after the majority party had its own little caucus and decided where it might want to go and then, and then invite the minority in and talk things over and you know, hopefully realize that, yeah, there are some ideas that the minority has here that could be accepted and so on. But I think those kind of things are going to be done more and more you know, by these informal, uh, off the cuff or off the record types of meetings, discussions, caucuses, whatever you want to call them. But uh, I think that's the only way to proceed without everything just being complete out war when they go into public session. And now they're out to make political points for the next campaign to score political points in that, that regard rather than to come to agreement on things. So. so it sounds like that's a committee kind of concept, right? Where that brings some kind of element of privacy back to committees where they can have some private time to discuss priorities and compromise. Yeah. and. Uh, because I think committees are really the key to getting getting things back, if not to normal. I don't think there's, you know, I had once used the phrase, both of my books, in, in fact, uh, you know, we, we need to return to the regular order, restore the regular order. Well, you know, the regular order was something that took place in a completely different environment, uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago, and we cannot reinvent Congress so it's like it was in 1960 or 1970, but we can, I think, come up with new ways of doing things you know, that will take into account uh, the fact that members are frustrated with the way things are done now, and they really do want to find better ways of doing it without having to just thrash things out, you know, in public on television uh, for their campaign purposes. So, you know, I don't think that the floor can be changed all that much other than broadening, the, as I said, the general debate and time on some of the amendments that are allowed, but you're still going to have the wars on the floor for campaign purposes. But I think committees are more say malleable and agreeable to uh, finding ways to get things done initially and so you know that's where my my hope lies now so how about in terms of oversight we've been talking about the legislative process what about the oversight process you know what are your thoughts there in terms of the way it's structured committee wise is it doing is congress doing its job there where is it falling yeah one of the big uh, and i'll be the first to admit it one of the big faults that we had uh, with our contract with America, when the Republicans took power in the House, was we promised to cut committee staff by one third. And most of those people that we cut, yes, there was some dead wood in there. The, the majority had uh, a much higher number than two thirds. Uh, it's supposed to be one third minority, two thirds majority. But in any event, yes, we cut some dead wood, but we also cut out the staff that were doing the nitty gritty oversight of the executive branch where they were going down interviewing people in the executive agencies, you know, taking uh, phone calls and, and, and having communication on a regular basis to find out what was working and what wasn't working at the executive level. So, you know, we've got to restore a greater oversight capacity in Congress, and that means more staff, people that do have some policy expertise, uh, so that they're not just there to, uh, to write legislation, but they're there to figure out, well, what's wrong that we're trying to correct uh, to begin with. So you think it's mainly a resource question for committees to improve well, oversight? It is, it is that, but it's also a, a problem with, with the executive branch. If you have a, a Democratic uh, president and a Democratic Congress, as we do now, 
then you know the Congress is going to be less activist in doing oversight and doing things that would embarrass that Democratic president. Same was true when when uh, we had a Republican president and a Republican Congress. Is that they tend to uh, dampen down any real oversight efforts that might embarrass the administration. So that's something that you have to deal with. And uh, you know I'm not sure how you deal with it other than the the minority. Uh, calling things to the attention of the media where there really does need to be some oversight of if a problem has become so obvious that you know you're getting negative stories on it in the press but Congress is not lifting a finger to do anything about it right great well why don't we move on to what we call the lightning round of questions that I ask everybody who comes on the program um, and so that later on we can compare uh, the answers <laughs> among the various scholars and uh, and practitioners um so if you're ready we'll move on to those questions okay um the first one is what do you think congressional representation should mean well i think it means basically uh well, three or four things but members want to represent their districts and their constituencies in the best manner possible so that involves you know a lot of staff work casework, communications a lot of uh, town hall meetings and so on representation is a major uh, role for members, but I think you're asking a broader question about what does it mean to be a representative and what are your roles. Secondly, are you know the committee responsibilities that you have, and uh, those should be taken very seriously, and members should be dedicated to their committees and develop expertise and get the proper training uh, that they need, and so there needs to be more training there. Third is the oversight that we've already mentioned, uh, and that is that members need to have training in how to do good oversight because you know it's just not something that you walk into willy-nilly and you just pick it up and no you, you need training so we do have people that can do that kind of training and that that is needed too fourth obviously the role of being representatives is to get reelected, and they're you know they're focusing mainly on that so i don't have any any ideas there other than the fact that members should not be expected to spend three hours of every day going across the street and dialing for dollars uh, from their uh, fundraisers in order to both help the party coffers and their own uh, coffers for re-election. I mean, that is a tremendous drag on members' time when they're here in Washington. If we go back to the first part of your um, answer, which is on the constituent side, um, you know, there's this concept that, you know, members reflect the views of their constituents versus they make their own judgments about what's in their constituents' best interest. Where do you come down on that question? Well, I think that uh, I don't have the exact uh, Burkean quote, but uh, other members of, of, in Congress have uh, basically said that, yes, I am there to reflect the views of my constituents, but B, they have sent me there to exercise some judgment too. And so uh, they realize that I'm going to have to study things a little more thoroughly than they're able to and to, uh, and to make some judgments. Now, if you are out of step at all times with what you think the majority of your district wants, well, you're not going to get reelected. So there has to be a balance there. But I think members know that uh, a big part of it is uh, exercising some independent judgment and then trying to educate your constituents on why you voted as you did on that particular matter. And that's that's a tough one for members to do. Great. Next question is, and you've talked about this a little bit already, but how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? Yeah, I would do. Uh, basically allow members to have about one third of their time doing their constituency work. So that means you're going to have not only uh, time for you to do your office 
work here in Washington to help uh, with the casework, the uh, looking at what kind of responses you're giving to, to constituent mail and so on. But the, the district work periods, the uh, town hall meetings, the uh, going from town to town and, and finding out what's on the minds of constituents. So I would say, you know, one third of the time probably should be given to constituent service of some, some sort. Second one third should be given to your committee and subcommittee uh, proceedings, hearings, markups, and so on. And then one third of time to, uh, to floor activity, conference committees, although they've gone the way of the dodo between the House and the Senate. But uh, you certainly need to allow for uh, adequate floor time to deal with these big issues in uh, making the final judgments on passing the legislation. So the third that's in committee, uh, how would you break that between legislative and oversight kind of activities? Yeah, I would say that the legislation is still going to take uh, a major part of that, let's say 60, 70%, but that there should be a way found for committees, mainly through some committees, I think, to do the oversight. So in the rules committee, when I was staff director, we made sure that you know the subcommittees uh, at least had some preliminary hearings, uh, they got the sense of how members uh, overall in the House felt about things and so on. So we were overseeing the, the House itself, really, but before bringing things then to the full committee for uh, actual uh, votes. So the subcommittee did the groundwork. They would handle the, the, the lead uh, in the full committee when we were marking up bills, and they would also handle things that, you know, on the floor because they had developed the expertise. So, you know, I think that, you know, oversight is a very important thing and that subcommittees can be better utilized in that regard and not feel that you have to completely duplicate the entire legislative process at every stage of the game. Got it. Next one is, um, and we've talked about this already as well, but I'd like to hear, you know, sort of uh, another view at it, which is how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? Um, are you talking about the full full chamber or um, well, I mean, no, it would be any any way you see fit, whether yeah. it's, you know, should it be in the committee, should it be on the floor, right. should it be, you know, people stating their positions or should they be cloistered together, you know, in, in, in smoke filled rooms, you know, talking about how to convince each other to, yeah. to vote for a bill. Yeah, I think that the, uh, the main deliberation that goes on does have to be done publicly when you're considering options or choices. But as I mentioned before, there can be a lot more uh, informal deliberation going on where members are A, getting to know each other and B, getting to get a better sense of where their, their, their colleagues are coming from on a committee or subcommittee or even when you're about to go to the floor so that uh, you, know, you have a better sense of, of what you want to do, how you want to get there and so on. So you know, I just think that uh, Deliberation is a key, the committees are the key to good deliberation, but you still have to have a good process on the floor that will make some sense to the media and to your constituents because that's what they tend to focus on the most. Got it, so a lot of that sort of more intimate, maybe private discussion in committees and then more of public facing, Correct. Uh, more what you would call classic debate on the, on the floor. Right, exactly. Great. Um, next one is what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, I could uh, say 50 years, but it took us 50 years to evolve from a, a culture of legislating to a culture of campaigning. So it may, it may take us another five decades to gradually 
evolve into something, you know, a little more thoughtful uh, and, and uh, that will begin to build up public confidence in, in Congress once again. But, you know, I one of the things that the Select Committee on Modernization of Congress has recommended that is a good start is that when the new members of Congress arrive, the freshman members just elected for the first time, they should have bipartisan <clears throat> meetings between the, the parties before what happens now, where they get herded off into their separate buses, Republicans in one bus, Democrats in another, go off to their separate caucuses and, and uh, spend the next two or three days in a doctor indoctrination. I think you've got to have more bipartisan uh, training for new members where they are being educated on the, the mores, the, the folkways of the Congress, even the history of Congress, uh, what the, the role of individual members should be, as well as some, some good bipartisan tips on how, how to run an office. You know, there are different things that you can do in those bipartisan orientation sessions that are just not being done now until, until maybe they go to Harvard where they have a bipartisan retreat for freshmen. And as uh, one of the, the members pointed out at a, at a, uh, involved or a webinar I was involved with a couple of weeks ago was, yeah, that Harvard thing sounded really good, but out of my class of, I don't know, he's in the class of 2010, so it was about 120 or 100 and some members, freshman Republicans, only 20 of them went to the Harvard retreat. Others went to an alternative thing that was put on by the Heritage Foundation, which was very conservative. So anyway, I think you cannot rely on Harvard to, uh, to pull the weight for bipartisan uh, orientation. Makes sense. Next one is what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? That's a very unfair question, but I would say the, the, the one book that certainly focused me throughout my uh, graduate school years and well into my career in Congress and still does is the Federalist Papers. I go back and I read and reread that. I'm finding new things all the time. But then as I look, you know, in the uh, certainly in my graduate school years beyond that, uh, Woodrow Wilson's congressional government was an eye opener. Yeah, he wanted a British parliamentary system, but you know, he's the one that said, you know, Congress in session is Congress on public exhibition, while Congress in its committee rooms is Congress at work. Well, he was right about that, but he didn't like the committees because they were too autonomous. They weren't going along with the party, and he wanted a parliamentary type system where the party leaders dictated from the top down and so on. But in any event, I thought that was an excellent book. That was his accepted as his doctoral dissertation at Johns Hopkins long before he got involved in teaching himself at Princeton and then later as governor of New Jersey and then as president. But he uh, he was always wedded to that to the British system. But then third, uh, a book in 63 by James McGregor Burns that was called Deadlock of Democracy, Four-Party Politics in America. But he picked up where Wilson left off and basically saying, now you've got the presidential wing of the Republican Party, the, the congressional wing of the Republican Party, same with the Democrats, presidential wing and, and the, uh, you know, the congressional wing. What you need is just two parties with the, the, you know, the leadership from the top down telling what the party priorities are, you know, how, what legislation is needed to implement them and so on. Well, you know, I didn't agree with that book, but it again, it uh, like Wilson's book, set me to thinking about how Congress does organize and as a lot of your, I think, interviewees from the uh, from academia have pointed out, we've come about as close to party government as can be, and yet it's not doing the job. And uh, that that's uh, basically the theme of the the book that uh, James uh, Curry and Francis Lee did on the limits of party uh, in, a, in a polarized era. And that is, 
the fact that party government doesn't do it. And the reason it doesn't do it was that the British system does not, does not travel well across the Atlantic, that we have checks and balances, we have separation of powers, and uh, therefore we cannot expect party government to somehow get things done. Yes, we get things through the House, uh, sometimes ramrodded through by the leadership, but uh, they die in the Senate, which tends to be obviously a little slower. Uh, they've got the filibuster and so on. So, you know, party, uh, party government is not the answer. And uh, that's what uh, people have increasingly found. Right. Well, the last question is, what plans do you have uh, for your work uh, in the coming years? Where do you where do you want to go with it? Well, I'm uh, I don't want to say how old I am now, but uh, I'm in my uh, seventh decade. Let's put it that way. Uh, soon to leave. But anyway, the I've done two books already and uh, I want to do a third that uh, I've just got the title for it and it's called To Restore Trust in Congress. And it's got, got a double meaning on purpose. And that is, first of all, you have to restore trust within the Congress. Members have to start trusting each other again. And that means getting, getting to know each other and, uh, and having these private uh, sessions where they are are really talking things out without being on camera and uh, thinking about the next election. But then the second part obviously is if you do that, I think you will come a long way towards once again, restoring public trust in Congress. And that's down in the teens now, the approval rating or the confidence level of Congress is, is in the toilet. And uh, you're not gonna get that back until the people see, I think Congress just working better together to get things done for the people instead of just focusing on the next uh, election. Yeah, well, thanks, Don, so much for joining us. Much appreciate all the work that you're doing. My pleasure. Good to be with you.